I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Francesca T. Royster, Ph.D. Her new book is Choosing a Family, a Memoir of Queer Motherhood and Black Resistance. As a multiracial household in Chicago's Northside community of Rogers Park, race is at the core of Francesca T. Royster and her family's world, influencing everyday acts of parenting and the conception of what family truly means. Focusing on a unit of three, the author, her wife Annie, who is white, and Cecilia, the black daughter, they adopt as a couple in their 40s and 50s. Royster chronicles this journey journey to motherhood while examining the messiness and complexity of adoption and parenthood from a black, queer, and feminist perspective. She interweaves her experiences and memories with queer and gender theory to argue that many black families, certainly her own, have historically had a queer attitude toward family. Configurations that sit outside the white normative experience and are richer for their flexibility and generosity of spirit. She's a professor of English literature at DePaul University in Chicago, uh, where she teaches classes on African-American literature and culture, Shakespeare and gender and queer theory. theory. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Francesca. Oh, so nice to be on, Catherine. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to be discussing the book and your very complicated, complex uh, family, I guess, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so you, your queer black mom, unit mm-hmm. of three, Annie, wife is white, and daughter is, Cecilia is black. Let's start with that. Uh, okay. Okay, uh, so you, you've got it all in there. You've got the whole nine yards, it seems to me, in terms of... Uh, ethnicity, age, adoption. So <laughs> you tell me, <laughs> I guess, I mean, first of all, let's start with you. You adopted and your daughter and decided to adopt a daughter who's black, not white. Maybe start mm-hmm. with that. What, what was the, how do, and you, you guys were in your 40s and 50s, or one of you was in your 40s and the other in her 50s? Yes. Yeah, we can definitely start with that. So, um, yeah, I think that both both Annie and I felt like um, as mothers, we could just bring a lot in terms of care, in terms of um, like resources. And um, and we knew that historically African-American kids uh, are, are, are harder to um have placed in homes after they've been put up for adoption. Um, and we wanted to make a difference in, um, like in the African American community and kind of a, a more abstract way, but also in a really personal way. Um, I, like both of us are very deeply connected to my family, which is African American and, um, and wanting to in some ways kind of continue that the traditions and histories, um, which for Annie, like she's been a part of our lives for um, a really long time. We've been married for, I mean, we've been together for 24 years. So um, some of our reasons for wanting to adopt a black child have to do with just recognition that the, the inequalities of the system means that often um, black children are at risk, but also there was kind of a, 
historic and kind of more spiritual connection to African-American culture and history um, that also motivated us. And, you know, it, it was, you know, also like, I think I initiated our, our path into motherhood. So I was also feeling that connection um, to my own childhood and to the generations of mothers um, that I also write about. And so that was also part of the, the spiritual motivation for adopting a Black child. And you, uh, as being, and you talk about, obviously, uh, being a, a queer mother, uh, a gay mm-hmm. couple. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and you've been together for 24 years and then decided to adopt your daughter, which you actually could be grandmothers <laughs> at 40s <laughs> and true. 50s, right? Or at least 50s, yeah. we'll say, right? Uh, so that's a different challenge, I would imagine. But um, so the question is, I mean, um, you just, why at, after 24 years would you decide to adopt uh, a child? That's a long oh. time. You were together. I mean, you stay together longer than most couples do, whether they're married or not. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. That's something, um, you know, even with my own, my parents, my um, my mom, my birth mom and my dad um, were only together for I think maybe a decade, a little bit more than that. So, yeah, um, and we actually were, since it was 10 years ago that we um, adopted Cece. So we, were, we had been together for 13, 13 years when we decided to adopt. So it was still, you know, a pretty, a, a very big commitment. But um, yeah, some of that has to do with um, just feeling really confident in our our relationship, feeling really solid. Um, when I started, you know, just feeling kind of psychologically and spiritually that I, I wanted to become a mother, um, I knew that Annie was really the first person, the first relationship where it really felt that sense of kind of deep trust and that we could go on any path and, and um, solve any problem together. Um, and our lives had been very rich and full before that. Um, like we traveled, we both teach at the same university. So our, our work lives are very interconnected. We've written things together. Um, we bought a house, you know, all the things, lots of milestones that created the sense of, security and trust, um, and, you know, also fulfillment in a lot of ways, too. So when um, the, the feeling and, and kind of inkling to become parents kind of became strong for me, we had also been really involved in our, our um, blood family's life, like our nieces and nephews, and um, we were dedicated aunts, um, and that meant, you know, really being around for some problem solving and as well as like fun things um, with our nieces and nephews. And then, um, you know, we'd also uh, just had a chance to do things together as a couple. So um, it was actually a, a good time. I feel like personally too, my sense of, you know, just awareness of myself was at a place that I wasn't, you know, I think older parents, um, can bring self-knowledge and self-fulfillment that maybe I didn't have when I was in my 20s and just a certain amount of wisdom. Um, but we weren't so old that, like, the physical stamina that's needed <laughs> to take care of a little baby, um, we hadn't quite passed that. But I think we were, we were bringing other, other kinds of knowledge and accomplishments. 
I guess I have two things. Well, it sounds like obviously you had a lot of support from family, friends, colleagues, uh, as you say, nieces and nephews, um, those people that you're really close to, which obviously yeah. makes it, uh, I don't know if say easier, but uh, I mean, that's a good thing. But, you know, the title of the book, a memoir, a memoir of queer motherhood, what would be the differences between queer motherhood and straight motherhood? Hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that that's a good point. Well, some of that has to do with this idea of chosen family. And so the, the first, the title choosing family is both like the idea of being at a point in your life where you can choose to make a family, which is an experience that a lot of people don't have in terms of their approach to motherhood or parenthood. That it's often um, something that fate uh, kind of carries you through or, you know, um, but but because we were very intentional in the ways that we were approaching parenting and motherhood, um, I think that word choosing was important. But also um, a big part of the queerness of, of the queer motherhood that I think we're both living is is the idea of trying to think about family beyond the boundaries of blood and beyond the nuclear family to really trust and let um, our friends that we have relied on um, to be really central parts of how we parent, how we think about and make decisions and just, you know, kind of relying on them for care and love and things like that. So, um, so the idea of chosen family is, is one that's central to, you know, to queer thinking. And then I, I think I also am taking a queer lens um, in a way to um, look at the history of motherhood in my own family, too, to see how uh, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother were also expanding their household, um, you know, using methods of survival that relied on other people as well and teaming up, you know, pooling your money or um, letting in borders or um, having a friend come and stay um, stay with us for one summer when my mom, my mom letting um, a friend come and stay and take care of us when uh, she was having an operation um, for her vision, you know, just like really major ways that, um, you know, that we functioned as a family and not just in terms of two parents, but really um, connecting much wider. So um, in that way, I think that strategy of bringing in bringing in people and trusting people, expanding our household is something that Annie and I um, really try to try to enact. But also um, I recognize that as a method of survival for my, my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents as they um, were also struggling economically and struggling against racism and things like that. So yeah, that's where queer motherhood comes in. Well, and you're talking about fluidity and relationships and, and um, you know, the, uh, the ability to adapt to those kinds of whatever happens within the family. But then yeah. I also hear you saying both of you, I mean, I'm going back to you were together for 24 years, your professors, mm-hmm. your academicians, uh, you know, I assume you're comfortable financially and very, and you keep using the word intentional and yeah. I'm listening. I'm thinking what happens when all these, because 
whether you're queer or straight or black or white, all this stuff with parenting, you know, you have good mm-hmm. intentions and then it doesn't quite work out the way you thought it would. So how do you react? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that that happened. That's happened in big and small ways. And part of, you know, the discovery of becoming a parent is just letting go of some of the, you know, the first plans, best laid plans, <laughs> and like you know, being flexible in terms of expectations. So for sure, I um, I think that you know I was thinking about the intentionality in terms of seeking out adoption, you know, through an open adoption and making choices in that way and, you know, deciding when, you know, when was the right time to become a parent. But I I definitely experienced parenting itself as, um, you know, the embodiment of, um, you know, of of accepting change and fluidity and, um, you know, also sometimes loss that's unexpected. So whether it's, you know, driving to pick up CC from school and the bottom of our car dropping out in the middle of an intersection <laughs> and calling on, you know, our, our best friend Layla to come and get CC and then the um, the uh, homeless gentleman who I always see every day coming and helping me push the car to the side, like that was, that would be a moment of unexpectedness where, um, you know, we're just forced to rely on other people to help us do just to do a simple thing like a school pickup. But I know that that happens to, to all parents and um, (laughs) it's actually very, uh, I don't know, reassuring to know, you know, when I talk to my friends who are, also parents, most of my friends who are parents are parents of children who are now adults. So it's been really helpful, you know, like my friends in my writing group, um, when I've shared pieces of the the book, um, they were able to kind of reflect on their own experiences. And um, yeah, there is something kind of queer and excessive about parenting because it's, it always kind of goes outside of the lines, whether you want it to or not. What about, okay, so you, Annie and you, um, Annie's white, you're black. Does that get in, like, in, in terms of how you're parenting, Cecilia? Does, uh, do issues come up that are different for her than for you, ba- just based on that? Yeah, how you would I handle it, I should so. say. How do you handle? How do we handle it? Yeah. Um, well, we have, we definitely, um, it's almost, it feels almost like we share the same brain sometimes, even though we don't share the same history. So um, part of the great thing about being together for a long time is that we kind of know each other's strengths and weaknesses. But absolutely, like, especially thinking about um, encounters with, the ways that our bodies are perceived differently because she's white and I'm black by the outside world. I think that that's a point that um, is the most palpable where we experience things differently. Um, We live across um, around the corner from a police station and um, you know, both of us experience like just walking through our neighborhood in different ways and that street with the police station, you know, always feels a little tense to me in a way that I think Annie really gets, but might not feel in like the the most embodied way. Um, sometimes when we're moving through 
like going to a restaurant or, um, you know, even going to a school function or going to a doctor, like often um, people assume that I am CeCe's mom because we share the same race, but um, often leave out Annie or uh, a few times if Annie is um, taking care of CeCe and I'm not there, there's sort of this way that people really treat treat her as like, wow, how wonderful that you're, you know, this mother and you're parenting this African-American child. So I think sometimes there's a way that her mothering is seen as extraordinary, and but then <laughs> other times where her role is, is made invisible because people don't recognize us as a family. Um, so how do you think, a, a how, does, how does Cece... I'm saying Cece because you are. Um, how does she? Yes. How do you think she reacts to all of that? Because she has a white mom and a black mom. Um, how old is she? She's ten now. Mm-hmm. So you know, in terms of who she identifies with, um, is is well, you, you can't predict the future. But I was just thinking as she's <laughs> getting older, um, that the fact that you're black and are and her other mom is white, that her relationship is, how about this, colored by that? <laughs> um, um, you know, I, I feel like um, in many ways, like Cece, you know, she identifies very strongly with her African-American culture and history, um, a lot of our rituals that we uh, participate in and holidays that we recognize, our art, like everything you know, in a much, in a very deliberate way, reflects African-American culture and beauty. So um, I do think that there are part ways that in her identity of who she is, uh, my role as a parent might be kind of more, more um, directly connected. Like we wear our, uh, for a long time, we wore our hair the same. Um, We talk about, you know, issues of like beauty and, you know, all these things. But I also, um, but Annie's, um, first of all, like an extraordinarily educated person when it comes to African-American culture and issues. Uh, She's, you know, very strongly committed as an anti-racist. She's probably more up on current politics than I am. And, um, And I think that there are some ways that the values that she was raised with as, you know, a family that's Italian and Irish, that there are values and ideas about the primacy of family and kind of, you know, just ways of moving through the world that are, are similar or complementary. So, um, but I know that, that there are times when Annie makes an extra effort to be involved in things that are also connected to Cece's blackness. Like uh, tomorrow she's taking Cece to go get her hair braided. And, you know, that's a process that, you know, just requires articulating to the hairdresser, like exactly what we need and going to the beauty supply store and getting the hair, you know? And so it's really important. We found to share some of those rituals that are also affirming Cece's blackness and that both of us can be part of it. Um, and, um, I think too, that when it comes to grappling with racial inequality, racial violence, 
other forms of social injustice, like both of us talk to her and kind of talk to each other in front of her in ways where we really see that this is a history where we're all a part of it. And so I think that that also builds an important foundation. But we also just have our differences that have to do with our personalities. Like, um, I really take care of, like, medical things. And I like, you know, putting the Band-Aids on when when there's a boo-boo. And Annie is teaching Cece about budgeting. And she's also really um, great about, like, being aware of time and making sure that, that we're not late or, you know, like we just have different things that are that are not as much connected to our racial identities, but just our differences and maybe our family differences that work well together. And because we started up this journey as parents already knowing each other very well um, and not really having very strictly defined roles in terms of like what's a mom thing and what's a dad thing, since neither of us are dads. Um, I think it allows for us to kind of work pretty fluidly and to draw on each other when we need to. Well, and you, and all, and you have different skill sets. That. Yeah. And you're not yeah. constrained by having these roles, as you say, that with stuff you're supposed to do. You do what you do best and best with your daughter. What about her, What about yeah. Cece's friends? When they come, you know, she's 10 years old. She has her friends over. What's there? Is there, a, you know, a reaction? I mean, she's got well two moms, but she also has a black mom and a white mom. So, and she and ten year old girls have a lot to say. So, what do they have to say? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think that that the friends Cece has friends that she's been friends with since kindergarten, and like uh, she's really a kind of a long term friend kind of kid. So those friends are kind of like the good standbys. And um, some of her friends are also adopted or they have non-traditional households. One of her best friends, um, mom is a single mom. Another friend is, um, another very good friend is African-American and is raised by a white mom. Um, There's a friend who's um, one of her best friends from her school. Her parents are divorced and are sharing custody. So um, you know, so I think that part of it is that there's, as it turns out, a lot of kids have families that don't look like a standard, you know, nuclear family. And I think maybe CC has gravitated to kids who also have these, you know, different kinds of experiences. And we've really made made an effort to make sure that that she has kids in her life who are who are adopted or who are multiracial families too, so that she doesn't feel as isolated. And um, her school actually is um, has many um, has a small number of queer families, but many multiracial families as well. So I think that that's part of it. But yeah, for sure, there we've definitely encountered and CCS encountered like kids who are puzzled or curious or ask questions. And I think that that they were more outspoken about that when she was younger. So we really made an effort to uh, like go on field trips and to be, you know, chaperones and to, you know, like um, talk about who we are and, you know, but also sometimes protecting CeCe's boundaries. Like if, if kids 
sometimes kids are very curious and they ask really explicit questions. Like I, I remember taking Cece to, you know, her first day of Y camp and um, a kid who was Cece's age, who she didn't know very well, um, was asking, you know, if we were both her moms and then asking, did we sleep together? And we were like, you know what, that's something for you to talk to your own mom about because we're right. not going to talk about it. I'm not going <laughs> to talk about your my business. sex life with a six-year-old. <laughs> right. Um, but, um, yeah. But I think that... I, I mean, we only have a couple... I just want... This was just a statistic. I don't think in... I, I don't know if it's the last census or whatever, that the typical American family is not white mom and dad and two and a half kids anymore. That is not... Right. Then that nuclear family doesn't really exist. Um yeah, I mean, it does, I guess, sometimes where it might feel un- uncomfortable, especially for Cece, is that it exists, you know, on TV and in uh, ads, but it doesn't really reflect the realities of, of what people are, how people live. Yeah, so, unfortunately, I think that's changing. I mean, you can sort of yeah. see it evolve in advertisements and, and even in sitcoms. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I think that... For me, anyway, I think that's a good thing. Only two minutes left, so give us a okay. website and/or websites to go to for more information about the book and about your work. Oh, for sure. Okay, so you can go to abramsbooks.com to find out more about choosing family, um, and it it tells you know it gives a really nice synopsis of the book, and it gives you opportunities to purchase the book. Um, and for my own work, um, I have a website uh, connected to DePaul.edu to the Department of English, um, and it gives a full profile of my other books. Um, I've written on uh, Black Country Music. I've written on Cleopatra and Race. I've written on um, uh, Disco and Funk in the 1970s. So uh, this is my first uh, memoir, but uh, but I also... Um, use memoir as a tool in my academic work. So if you go to DePaul um, and look up, look me up in the Department of English, you can learn more about my scholarly and my creative writing. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I've been talking to Francesca T. Royster, PhD, her new book, Choosing Family, a Memoir of Queer Motherhood and Black Resistance. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 